Welcome, everybody, to episode 23 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I am your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Hello, hello, hello. Today, we have an awesome guest, one a guest that I am uh, super excited to talk to. I've been wanting to talk to him for about four years and finally plucked up the courage to email him. It is the one and the only Benjamin Boyce of Evergreen State College fame. Benjamin, how are you doing? Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for any of our listeners out there, we've done a couple of different podcasts about the Evergreen uh, issues. Um, we've tried to do our, our best at uh, broadly and briefly describing some of the things that went down and the ramifications of that today and how it's kind of parallel to today. And um, and then I emailed Benjamin and he's like, yeah, I'd love to, uh, to talk some more about it. And so uh, that's mo- I think probably we'll spend a good amount of our time talking about, but um, I guess to start, I'm actually curious if you wouldn't mind, Benjamin, uh, giving us a little bit of a breakdown of how you got caught in the, the evergreen storm. Okay. Like, why are uh, you the one who, why are you the one who knows more than anyone else in the world about this? Cause you probably do know more than anyone else. You've done, I think more research than anybody. I have access to more documents so, for sure. And I've, I've transcribed more video just uh, in a raw fashion yeah. than anybody else. I'm sure. Um, there's one researcher Sean McCammick, who uh, took my material and then crunched it through some sort of sociological data center. And actually, he actually counted out all the different chants in the footage, like how many times they said, (laughs) hey, hey, ho, ho, and all their different chants. Um, But I was a student at Evergreen, a non-traditional student, as they call. I started uh, in 2013. Uh, halfway through the mm-hmm. year, and I was 36, and I graduated, uh, or I s- finished my degree. Uh, it's not a terminal degree, but it seems to be kind of terminal in, in uh, another respect with regards to my uh, attitude towards the academy in 2017, a couple weeks after the uh, debacle, or perhaps we can call it the insurrection, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I went there because I was kind of uh, waylaid in my life. I had worked a lot in preschool and I'd written a lot of novels that were highly experimental and I contend are postmodern or pushing the envelope of postmodern uh, in the fictional sense and the ways in which narrative operates. And I felt a dire need to put a stop on my life and dive headfirst into my passion, which is literature and writing and storytelling and everything surrounding that, which would include hermeneutics or the interpretation of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went there and uh, I was I was kind of down the street. Uh, I kind of moved to Olympia, uh, Evergreen's in Olympia. Evergreen's really, 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 really cheap, especially if you're uh, in state student and also I hadn't gone to college so uh, you know and I was really low income working uh, preschool so it was just a really f- good financial opportunity in, in a certain uh, respect and I uh, was very much attracted to the student centered learning there specifically the amount of weight and power that the individual student has at crafting their own degree. Like they, they used to sell it as a place where you could craft your own degree. Now I'm not sure exactly where they're headed with that, but that independent spirit in, in a certain respect did come to a head in that uh, week of protest. If, if you look at the protest footage, and I have compiled it into a 22 series uh, 
documentary, trying to organize it as best I can, uh, hours and hours of footage. But if you look at it from a certain angle, you'll see that it was just a group project. It was the ultimate group project in social justice. And when I went there, so I went there expecting to dive headfirst into college and into higher education as I perceived it. And I met a certain number of disappointments and recalibrated my expectations accordingly, uh, one being that the standards for education uh, had uh, kind of slipped or they weren't there or I expected a certain level of standards and they were really, really dumbed down to the lowest common denominator. And because Evergreen had been uh, suffering uh, problems with enrollment. They had uh, decreased their standards for enrollment. Uh, I think it was 98% when I got there, 98% acceptance rate when I got there. And there's some problems. That's correct, uh, yeah. Yeah. There were some problems with them in the ways in which they brought on students uh, and then didn't actually train them and prepare them for college-level education. So if you look at the footage, you'll see a lot of young people out of their depth uh, intellectually, uh, people who probably mm-hmm. either not necessarily don't belong at college, but hadn't been prepared and had been uh, coddled rather than um, adduced into uh, various pillars of education, being critical thought uh, and open discourse and, and things like that. But this equity, inclusion, diversity uh, thing uh, kind of tampered that pursuit of excellence, meritocracy, all these other uh, kind of qualities of uh, excellence. The pursuit of excellence had taken a backseat to the pursuit of equity or equalization of outcomes. Uh, so I went there, and it was kind of a backwoods place, rather crunchy, rather granola, rather... I, I remember walking on campus and seeing this big poster about no one wins under patriarchy, we need to smash the man or something like that. And I'm like, what, is this 1993? You know, there was this air of political correctness that I had thought was outmoded uh, sometime post-Clinton era, but it was still there. It, it, it felt like stepping back 20 years. Um, and then as I got more involved in in the college, uh, to a certain respect, I was very independent in my learning and in my uh, socialization. But I did work for the media uh, department of the college, and I would be on camera for a lot of these seminars, lectures, workshops, orientations, uh, speeches, lectures, etc. Around these concepts of equity and anti-racism and this new crop of progressivism that, in my mind, my argument, one of my current arguments right now is that the civil rights era in its current manifestation, we're seeing the decadent phase of civil, civil rights, whereas the golden era was about... Uh, equality of opportunity, judging people based on the content of their character as opposed to the color of their skin. Now we're focusing more and more on these categories and then seeing that there's all these disparate outcomes. That must be injustice. That must be racism, systemic, et cetera, or implicit. And so how can we, uh, as a bureaucratic agency, such as the federal government or college administration, uh, solve this problem for people. Uh, and I saw the rhetoric crop up and intensify and then added to that were a number of different religious and illiberal uh, accoutrements of the ways in which these ideas were promulgated. It was really, it was a total mind screw. So that's how I kind of got involved. And long story short, we can get into the more of the details. After everything happened uh, in the 
big blow up the week of the 22nd of May of 2017, and it lasted about a week, and then there's a huge fallout. Uh, and then Brett Weinstein goes on Rogan, goes on Rubin, goes on Tucker Carlson. All of the students had live-streamed their footage onto the internet. YouTube took that up and started splicing and dicing it. And I saw a lot of narrative being made out of this material. And I'm like, you guys are missing half the story here. You're looking at all these kids shouting. I saw the teachers and the administrators call them more or less explicitly to revolt. The, the, the teachers, the administrators said that the Western uh, canon, the Western uh, academic structure, the United States, it's all an oppressive system that we need to overthrow. And those students decided to overthrow the first, the closest uh, Western academic institution that was right there. So they kind of uh, put those ideas and then uh, they sowed the wind and they repped the whirlwind. And so I took it upon myself uh, to try to show that there were adults in the room and the responsibility lies uh, on the adults and on these deeper ideas that were much deeper than people acting out, than young people uh, just being frustrated and <clears throat> horn, horny in an, a very extroverted way. Um, you know, horny for justice, I guess. Uh, so that's kind of how <laughs> I got justice. going on this. <laughs> that's a great slogan. That needs to be a, a banner. The, the spark of all this actually came from the faculty Mm. That encouraged the the students to take the stance. Oh wait, but not on us. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and and you can see footage of certain characters in uh, the faculty and the administration. Um, there's different levels of it. There, it's really difficult to really suss out. And I've tried to kind of show that there's certain faculty who are promulgating certain ideas of revolution, of injustice, of hatred, of of hatred, just people being very discontent in their own life and then coddling these students and putting this agitation into their midst. You can see it. And, and everything that the kids did um, in a more mature fashion or a more literary fashion or erudite fashion happened on the level of the faculty. The faculty had already been canceling one another and dogpiling one another for not agreeing with uh, what was going on. And not just Brett Weinstein. Brett Weinstein, a lot of hay has been made out of him. And not to detract at all from his work and his experience, but it had been happening over and over again, where if you if you deviated from the narrative that Evergreen was steeped in white supremacy and racism, if you challenged that and said, listen, we're doing a lot of good work and we're doing better than most other colleges with the metrics that you guys are, are saying that we're doing, uh, if you said that and said that we're not racist here, they would all, the, the teachers would dogpile in these, uh, these email chains. They would dogpile and say, you're, that's just your privilege talking, you're total racist, that proves our point, that you can't see it. Like there's no, there's no, there's no null factor, whatever they, that sciencey term. There's like no null result. There's no way to disprove their belief system. And they took that. And then when George Bridges, the current and outgoing president, uh, came on, he empowered those people. And he, his first words to the college campus mirror so much Joe Biden. So much of what's happening on the federal level right now 
happened with George Bridges coming on. And I don't know, I'm not going to say that the outcome's going to be similar at all. I'm not going to say that we're all going to devolve into a race war, which is what kind of happened at the Evergreen State College. I'm not going to say that that the federal government's going to be able to get away with totally implementing these highly, highly racist policies and ideologies throughout federal government. But George, uh, not George Bridges, Biden is implementing this equity thing and saying that, you know, our, our America, you know, we made some progress in the past, but we are still steeped in the sin, the original sin of racism. It's throughout our entire midst. Our, every structure is encoded with this racism. Uh, what do you mean by racism? And we need to root it out through equity. What do you mean by equity? And I really am not sure that Joe Biden exactly knows what he is doing, but his handlers are promoting the same exact ideology, that it was the bedrock for the complete meltdown and the betrayal of Evergreen, of its founding principles of a place of higher education and, and excellence in outcome. Yeah. Well, now that's What I find... <laughs> so do you take that um, with a grain of salt? I, I think it's important. Of course, but yeah. I don't mean to overstate the case, but I think it is uh, something to be taken very seriously. Yeah. Um, so is it safe to say, because the, um, the, the sense that one gets, if you do look at what happened to Evergreen, is it was basically everyone against Brett. Um, but is it fair to say there are several other faculty members who will say have level heads on their shoulders um, that were also catching this kind of heat? It just so happened that Brett was kind of the figurehead or the one that, you know, there, was there when it all really went down. There's several reasons why Brett became a central figure. Um, and one reason, probably the first reason was that I guess the beginning is that there's a there, Brett Weinstein has a, uh, a story that there's several iterations of leading up to the Tucker Carlson event. So he goes on Tucker Carlson a couple days after he's protested. And when he goes on Tucker Carlson, uh, the, the faculty, the, the, the college is united against him as uh, the, the fall guy for every bit of blowback that they're going to receive. Once he steps out of their circle and tells the world what's going on, he becomes the scapegoat. Before that, he had, he had been scapegoated uh, iteratively, uh, dating back, um, explicitly dating back to uh, probably November or December of 2016. There was this, uh, this event that the college held called... Uh, a report back from the uh, Office of the Equity and Inclusion, or the Equity Council report back. Uh, it was a week after the Trump inauguration, and uh, the college put on uh, the show of introducing their equity plan uh, that, that oversteps its charge to just take a look at the college. But the equity plan, in essence, causes equity to be in power of hiring and firing and promoting people. It, it, it's basically a move to make equity the the central focus of the entire college, which they were not asked to do that. And the way in which that they produced this plan or to, to brought this uh, plan public, and the plan itself is horribly done. It, it's a it's an atrocity of data of, of uh, as an academic document, as any sort of serious document, it, there's serious issues with it. The way that they use the data is it's highly, highly manipulative. And even the head of statistics I have on tape saying that this thing was, it's all changed cherry-picked, and they manipulated the data to get their result, uh, which was that there are these oppressed classes uh, that we need to rearrange the college around to support. But that aside, uh, the actual 
promote, uh, promoting of this plan was that they had this two hour, two and a half hour long uh, ritual uh, that was infused with all these kind of uh, appropriative Native American rights and uh, and and all this exhortation Hello, boys. of you this plan is very important and how much work we did, but no arguing about it, no actual talk about it in any sort of academic fashion. It was all promoted and then made to be the consensus truth or, or the the stepping stone for everything else. And this is kind of called the uh, the canoe meeting, because at the end of this, they all get into this canoe uh, and they all kind of confess their sins if they're white. Uh, everybody who's white confesses their sins and everybody who's not white kind of berates the, the people who are uh, who are white about this uh, entire uh, thing. Should I keep on going? Or should we pause uh, for uh, Bo to get back on? Well... We should probably pause. I don't want him to miss it, although I'm enjoying this quite a bit. <laughs> um, crap. All right. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's give him a minute, see if we can get him back on. <clears throat> Did you take any of Brett's classes, or Heather's for that matter? No, I didn't know anything about them until a month okay. after the events, and they, they found my videos. And we gotcha. became okay. cohorts. Yeah, and... just in, <laughs> in, in watching oh. Dark Horse and you know, getting to know them a little bit. Dude, I would have done anything to take one of their classes, say, like, 2013 or 14 before it got all sketchy. <laughs> but, yeah, a chance to uh, to go out of country and uh, and learn under them for an extended period of time sounds great. Um, it, how much do you think that would be a reflection of before the college got fucked up, frankly? Um is, is, are, are they unicorns in that sense, or were there other teachers that um, had were other teachers that took advantage of their liberties in teaching to produce something of high quality? I think that I think that under the evergreen model as it was, I don't know how it's going to if it's going to continue and how they're going to change this. But under I, I always said when I was there before any of this happened, I would call it whatever green. And you could get away with anything or nothing there. The students could do absolutely nothing and totally float by, or you could produce something completely balls to the wall over the top. And in a certain respect, my work on Evergreen is intended to be a reflection on the kind of work that Evergreen could produce, uh, which is just insanely obsessive uh, and going through and go taking an idea and just following it all the way down to this crazy conclusion uh, and just pr just overdoing it in the most grandiose possible fashion. Um, so on on the level of the student, that was the case, and on the level, level of the teacher, that was also the case, where you had teachers from all ranges of uh, acuity and alacrity and uh, exactitude, and I had a lot of really good teachers, and I had some total slack-off teachers, and I had programs where I'm like, what are we doing here? This is actually interrupting my education. It's on pause <laughs> for this freaking quarter because I have to do all this stuff that you're not really thinking through and slowing me down on my own projects. I had I had something that I wanted to do while I was there, and I was very jealous of my time. Um, but there was also, I, I could have 
branched out of, of the humanities, but I focused on the humanities and I bore my way through uh, all the different writing teachers and, and uh, the different programs in that respect, philosophy and uh, poetry, poetics as well. Um, but there is actually Evergreen, and I don't know how it's going to be, but up until a couple years ago, um, they are still the science programs itself are very top notch, uh, very, very exacting, very hardcore stuff, very difficult uh, to do and very completely immersive. And that's the thing about Evergreen, completely immersive education. You take a, a one class per quarter with two or three teachers or even the entire year, you took one class for the entire year and you just study a topic from all these different directions. And with regards to the sciences, they had a lot of top-notch stuff. Now, in the wake of 2017, and even during the 2017 fiasco, I uncovered documents where the administration started pressuring uh, teachers in the sciences to retroactively change grades for people based on their sex and race. And you know which direction we're talking about. Like if uh, there was this one case where a certain person of a certain sex and a certain race, I'm not talking gender, I'm talking sex, and a certain sex, certain race, um, that is on the top of this so-called progressive stack was uh, the, the the administration came down really, really hard on the science teachers to change grades to pass this person. Now, if somebody's trying to attain a degree, let's say, in medicine or veterinary care, and they didn't fulfill the requirements, and instead of actually having to go back and retake those things, the administration says, we need to pass you for this equity reason, they go out into the workplace. Okay, let's say that they go to grad school. They're not going to be prepared for grad school. Let's say they go out and start uh, surgically altering pets for some reason. They're not going to actually be prepared for that. So actually, the the, the this equity, anti-meritocracy, uh, race-based, uh, quota-based system actually degrades it has some real-world results. And in my further research going beyond Evergreen and watching these ideas corrupt American higher education, I've talked with uh, engineering professors and, you know, hard science professors who are saying, we can't hire people from America anymore. The American education system is not producing the workers we need for very high-level government security posts. Uh, because because it, it's so lax now, and it's all based on yeah. all this quo stuff. So now we're we're outsourcing <laughs> our infrastructure to other countries. Like how yeah. like like the secure the implications of this stuff are tremendous. It's not just this little college campus in the woods, you know, or just college campusness, college craziness, or whatever. There's some really really real world implications with this entire ideology. We, uh, we, um, last week we had on a professor from the university of Washington mm. and, um, and, uh, he's a, I'm a big fan of his, I've read a bunch of his books. He mostly what he studies is, uh, totalitarian regimes, but who's this, um, he, his name's, uh, Daniel Shiro. He's a professor in the uh, international studies department. And, um, he, uh, he talked about how, what he started to notice and what his his colleagues had noticed is that um, they were getting more and more students coming from high school who weren't well trained either. Like it, it isn't even just college. It's actually further down the line or earlier in the line. And he said in particular, if I remember correctly, he mentioned math 
uh, math was the biggest one that he recognized that a lot of his colleagues had been like, we have students who come in who can't do entry level math stuff. And like, what, how do you, and then he actually tailored a lot of, he talked a bit about how a lot of people don't want to go into government jobs anymore, but he had other reasons for that. Um, but I, I think it'd be, it's, it's, it's interesting that with lack of education and people not wanting to go into government jobs for multitude of reasons, we're now outsourcing, like you said, our infrastructure. Yeah. 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 That is and scary. I don't want to bring I, up I, China, but, but China is a big question. Uh, if you want to, if you guys ever want to go down a rabbit hole, start looking into how many uh, Chinese uh, studies departments there are in American higher education. And if you actually look and you start crunching numbers, you'll see that there's way more people staffed in those places than are actually producing education. There's these uh, oversight committees that follow Chinese students to America and then watch them uh, to make sure that they don't get too Americanized. And you have to wonder what else they're doing. Uh, on, sure. on an international, if you just want to go hardcore war games, like we are so screwed in the next 20 years, we are totally <laughs> screwed. <laughs> so this is in part why I um, why I have a drink with me. Um, <laughs> a little buffer. So I, yeah, well, so like I was telling Dan before you, you jumped on, but I woke up and I was really excited. Cause like I said, I've been wanting to, I've, followed your your podcast and stuff i've been wanting to talk to you for a couple of years and um i really like talking to people and i, I want to get your take on everything that's happening and he, hear kind of how you got involved and and then I, I finished up the last four episodes of the ever your evergreen uh, project and then i watched um the entirety of you and james Lindsay and Wokel uh, distance this morning i did it all this morning i did it on double speed so i could get through it <laughs> otherwise it'd be like six hours yeah. Yeah, that's but work. my 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 uh, my excitement this morning and like the passion that I had to like, I was like, I, I had like, I have like 60 questions I was going to ask you. I knew we'd run out of time. Like I was just super excited. It just slowly and incrementally decreased and like rapidly just descended into like anxiety and fear and war games, like, like d depression and, and not, not, <laughs> not performance anxiety, but just like state of the world anxiety. If I, if I'm yes, right. well, yeah. You know, that's definitely correct. And uh, Dan and I have talked a bit about this. I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast, but we've talked about it off the podcast. I, I waffle between um, periods of like intense determination. And you'd mentioned that your project was like a, a sort of um, a, a good highlight of like this obsessive run to the end of a conclusion. Right. And I, I get like that personally. And so like I've immersed myself into a lot of the stuff that we're talking about so I can understand it. Like I'm trying to do what James Lindsay's doing broadly speaking, just with less time. I'm not reading 10 hours a day, but um, so I, I go through periods of that. And then I go through periods of like, holy fuck, like, what am I doing? Is this even right? It might be, am I not being charitable enough? Mm -hmm. What if someone finds out like, you know, am I going to get sent to a gulag? Like, <laughs> like what the fuck's going to happen? <laughs> and, uh, but you know, and I'm sure you go through this too, which is why I'm bringing this up. I'm sure that, cause you've kind of been much more immersed into this than anyone I've ever actually personally met. And I can't imagine that it, it's, it, you've just been consistently safe while talking about this stuff. And so, um, yeah, that, that was the reason for the drink is I needed to like calm my nerves a bit. Cause I was like, sometimes it just gets so overwhelming, mm -hmm. like the stuff you know, the stuff we're trying to learn and trying to understand and then yeah. trying to articulate it. It's, it's a lot harder than it is to learn it. Like I can, I can read this stuff. I'm reading intersectionality as critical social theory right now by, uh, um, Patricia Sullivan, I think is the name. And, mm -hmm. um, 
understand it as I go through it. No problem. It's dense, but I understand it. And then I try and articulate it and I have like no idea how to like say to say it in a way that doesn't sound batshit crazy. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's weird stuff. It's really weird stuff. Yes. And you really have to tie it down. And and I uh there's constant social costs to critiquing what's going on, um, especially in the era of Trump, which we are not out of, and that will linger over us and be used to quash dissent uh, with regards to the advancement of these ideas for some time to come. Uh, I Just today I was scrolling through my Twitter feed and I saw somebody who I respect and enjoy a lot say that uh, something about uh, the, the capital... Uh, riot or insurrection or coup, I can't remember which uh, very special word was used, but they said that the amount of uh, white supremacist and anti-Semitic signals or signs on people's clothing uh, really shows that, and and the amount of those signs on the people who performed that action, and the rush for people online to justify or to apologize or to minimize that action uh, really shows to me, this person said, that Auschwitz could happen at any time. And there's, and I bring that up just because the inflation of the enemy that critical social justice, equity, intersectionality is there to defeat. It's created this huge enemy of white supremacy, of systemic racism and implicit bias. It's very, very, very spiritual. It's not human-sized. It's not the size of normal, rational thinking. It, 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 it casts itself as end of history, talking about this huge superstructure like heaven, this this governing demiurgical force that organizes all society, this dark god of white supremacy, and then this implicit bias, this 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 spiritual this internal spiritual aspect that's subconscious, that's beneath you. And and somewhere in between that is this an eternity of work of equity. And and I'm trying to process Biden's speech yesterday about equity. And he says he he sets up the entire thing very, very uh, implicitly uh, in saying that, uh, you know, the systemic racism, the systemic racism, we have to defeat the systemic problem, which is everywhere. You don't define it with this thing called equity, which we don't define, but it's not equality. We know it's not equality. It's equality plus. Which doesn't make sense because either things are equal or not equal, guys, but it's equality plus. And then – but he says that the work is never done. Uh, but he doesn't say that exactly. And if you look – if you listen to the language of the proponents of this ideology, they say explicitly that the work is never done. And they said that a lot at Evergreen. But Biden yeah. said, of course I can't fix this problem right away. We're not going to fix it right away. But implicit in that is that this is the – new war on terror, this endless war against this eternal, internal, eternal enemy. Uh, and so the, the, and I bring that up because the way in which this ideology attaches to people's imagination is very much like a religion. It's very narrative based. It's not going to be solved by apologetics. If you're, if you're a a hardcore Christian, no amount of Mormons knocking on your door are going to convince you to become a Mormon. Like there's only a very small subset of people who are going to be persuaded by argument. 
you need to see the outcome of this and you need to tell a better story. And that to mm-hmm. kind of go back to why I ended up telling the stories, because I kind of gave up on literature at the end of my education at Evergreen. I'm like, I did my work there. I'm just going to sit on this, you know, these 20 novels that I have and slowly correct them until I die. But then Evergreen kind of gave me this story in this completely, uh, completely relevant to our time with this completely different medium of video. And then that, that's replicating itself over and over again. And I bring that up because my, my studies are in story and language. And, and the way that I've gone through and tried to attack this stuff is by looking at it narratively. And a lot of the roots of postmodernism, which gave rise to critical theory, is in literature. It's kind of an outpouring, yeah. uh, an outgrowth of hermeneutics, broadly speaking, which originally was the interpretation of the Bible, but it's very based in text. And um, so th- there's the li- literary level and then the language level. If you just analyze people's, uh, the words that these governments and then these individuals on social media speak, they're all speaking in this uh, this certain frame of mind with certain words. And, and so you, you really, it's really easy to just say it's a religion and leave it at that. But actually that's just the beginning of the conversation of trying to figure out what this stuff is. Well, I, I tell you, I've, I have uh, firmly shifted to describing it as a cult by actual definition. Although those are even becoming more fluid than I would like, but in the yeah. traditional sense of a definition, yeah. um, it, you know, it's a cult, 100%. There, you know, a there's no reason to cult. it. Absolutely. Um, it seems to me, and let me know what you think about this, but it seems to me that the we need a name for this damn thing. The woke movement um, is pulling off the grand misdirection by making a boogeyman out of white supremacy when what they're doing is the actual threat <clears throat> to our democracy. <clears throat> because, you know, if it turns into, um, you know, you're either with us or you're against us, mm-hmm. uh, the work will never be done, mm-hmm. you must listen to us, um, or we will, you know, we'll, we'll kick you off social media, you'll become a nobody, um, or even worse, depending on how far things go. Um, it really seems like that is part of the tactic and that they're, they're literally flipping it around, whereas what they are doing is uh, threatening our democracy, but they are blaming that threat on the other side, which in reality, in like statistical reality, is very mm. small. Um, you know, the, the white supremacists certainly exist, and I would venture to say what we saw at the Capitol on the 6th um, is a a worthwhile sampling of that. And what I mean by that is there Hmm. were clearly some folks that you could legitimately call white supremacists. Um, White nationalists, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, white nationalists um, that that really have that ideology. They were there. And, of course, an event like this is going to attract them. So, yes, they showed Mm up. Um, But they were the minority. And I think the great danger is if you try to cast all of the people that showed up for that event that we're calling an insurrection— um, if you cast them all as white supremacists, they're going to say, well, fuck it. You're going to call me a white supremacist? I'm going to be a white supremacist. And they're just making the problem worse. And I don't know if that is uh, strategic on their part. Yeah. If they can just anger everybody to the point where they actually get the civil war that they're looking for that will be necessary to justify 
what it is they want to accomplish uh, or not. Yeah. There's, uh, I think I, I, I'm sorry, Bo. I, was, I, I think it is strategic. I, um, it's, the, it's the easiest way to address the problem. Right? If you present a threat to me and I call you a name that causes everyone around to you know, look at you and say, oh my gosh, really? Then I've just neutralized the threat. Right. And so it, it's mm -hmm. easy to lump everyone together and say, well, every, I, everyone, and that, that's where we see all the isms, right? Like uh, to go back to Brett as an example, like Brett's literally, literally been called a Nazi, which is funny because he's actually a legitimate Jew. So th he's got obviously there's family some, who there's some perished in yeah. the Holocaust. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because if you don't pay attention and you don't look any further into the problem of what happened at Evergreen than just reading a headline and a friend who tells you that he's a Nazi, then you're like, well, he's obviously a bad person. Conversation done. And I mean, there's a very strategic reason for that. I, I don't think that it's done um, simply. Uh, I, I think it's done on purpose. Right. Why wouldn't it be? It, it's smart. Because it works. <laughs> it's brilliantly effective. It's unfortunately, you know, and. Well, and Benjamin, I'll call back to the podcast that you had um, with James Lindsay and Vocal, Vocal Distance, is it? Well, vocal uh, Distance, yeah. Vocal Distance. Um, in talking about some of these specific strategies that they actually employ, um, what is it, you know, Beautiful Trouble, I think it was in that book. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's very specific. It's been around for a long time, and it works. And I think just having that you know, described and saying, oh, yeah, this is, this is the game mm -hmm. plan. They've been doing this for a while. Uh, it's definitely no accident. It is, it's mm -hmm. perturb the situation so you can get the photo op. Uh, and it works amazingly well. And it seems that virtually nobody is calling it out. Everybody just falls for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is... There, there, you guys brought up a lot of different things. There's a lot of different aspects of this phenomenon that you're talking about, just strategically on a cultural level or uh, a political level and not talking like uh, federal government, but just like how people engage with politics. There's a lot of different things that are setting up this, uh, that are controlling the ways in which we can talk about this. And they're leaning into uh, a certain strata of the voting republic that is well-intentioned, uh, liberal, leftish, and uh, prone to guilt and repulsion at the same time. They're guilty of you know their privilege, or they look at history and they see that all these other people have a bad break. We got a good break, so there's that guilt there that's being evoked. And then they're really repulsed by the idea of supremacy. They're repulsed by the idea of the bigot to such an extent that they will go and start acting like a bigot to stamp out bigotry because they, they have been conditioned to see, well, let's say very broadly speaking, Trump is a racist. Anybody who's apologizing for him is a racist, too. I've seen people, not even just Brett, I've seen good people that I know call other good people that I know Nazis. You know, I've seen a German call a Jew a Nazi <laughs> Because the Jew <laughs> defended Trump's economic plan. And you're like, wait, hold on. Do you see what's going on here? 
Um, so there's uh, there's there's the way in which that contingent, this this uh, probably upper middle class, middle class, boomer level, probably a lot of Gen X too. Um, uh, white the white liberal is being corralled by guilt and revulsion, uh, so that if somebody like me, who they think I'm good, but once I start saying critical race theory is actually very racist, anti-racism is the most racist thing that has come about in the last few decades. Uh, they see. So I have a bone to pick with that. They they have an automatic uh, backlash to that. Yeah, please bone your pick. Yeah. So <laughs> there's there's all this talk about anti-racism and every you, you you can't. It's not enough to not be racist. You have to be anti-racist, and everyone's talking about this. I own how to be an anti-racist, and I've read it. Okay. I've I've, I've read the damn book, and it. Ibram X. Kendi literally says on one of the pages that discrimination is fine. Yeah. Page 17, I if think. It, yeah. If it, if it fixes the equity problems that we're having. No, 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 no. Like, he, he even says that the only, uh, the only remedy to discrimination is discrimination. Yeah, exactly. So he doesn't, he doesn't ex- excuse it. He, he mandates it. Yes. Now, he does some other things that I find interesting, and we can talk about that later if we need to, that I actually think are it's good of him to call out, but people don't, t- I don't like, I, I, it gets, I get so frustrating when I see people talk about all this anti-racist stuff. And I'm like, the, the guy who became well known for that term literally says that to be anti-racist, you have to be discriminatory against, in this case, whites. Like that's, yeah. by definition, that's what you're doing. And it's like, and he wants, he wants uh, another <laughs> uh, constitutional amendment or another uh uh, piece of the Bill of Rights to institute a uh, office of equity, equity that will go yeah. through and silence political opponents if anything they say can be shown to to produce a racist or a, a non-parody yes. outcome. So everything has to be it's 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 beyond the pale. It's so beyond the pale that people can't even recognize that. And 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 plus, if you listen to him speak, he's he's well read. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not going to talk about his uh, mental acuity. I'll let John McWhorter do that. But <laughs> he's he's a very disappointing prophet of our age. Like like if we went from uh, Martin Luther King to Ibram X. Kendi, that that kind of shows like the the caliber of decadence yeah. that we have we've lost over the last 40, 50, 60 years. I will. I will say. Well, I tell you, uh, real quick, just Bo, you said you read the book. I uh, I'm an audiobook guy myself. I couldn't mm-hmm. even finish it. Just because of the low quality, I was like, ah, this is boring me to death. Yeah. This is I disagree with almost everything he says, and he's not making an intelligent case. Mm. Uh, I, tough, I, will, tough. I, w- I will say this for him, though, just to give him some kudos. Please in, do. Especially in, com- especially in comparison to uh, um, Robin D'Angelo. So her her <laughs> arguments in her book were... Because that's the other big book that's thrown up she, right now, right? No, she, she, she was there at Evergreen. Yeah. She, I know. I remember. The, I saw the, that. The yeah. teachers and the professors were sat with her, her red, little red book. Yeah. So I've actually seen multiples of hers, of her, um, her like speeches that she's given. And it's, it's yeah. like the same speech she's done a bunch of times, but, and I've, I own her book and I've read that too. And I, I will say that hers is better uh, written in terms of coherence. I, I guess if you want, I, I hate to say that a lot of this is coherent because a lot of the, the logic behind it is, intentionally not logical therefore it's not all that coherent but hmm. it you can tell i can tell that she has a better grasp of the arguments than Ibram x kendi does it gets very clear in reading it what i will say is this though her book reads like someone who is she sounds to me like a grifter 
who has a grasp on the subject and is just trying to write it out in as simplistic as form as possible so that people will buy the book. Whereas the one thing I commend even Rex Kendi with is that I actually believed while reading the book that he's truly grappling with the issues. And like, I respect him for that. Even if he has problems articulating it, like mm. he's basically mm. doing what I'm trying to do. I just disagree with him yes. on everything almost. Yeah. yeah it's like, I'm yeah. trying to grapple with this stuff and half of it, I don't understand. Um, and so I will say that for him, like his, the whole book reads as if he's like really, it's like right above his cusp of understanding. So he can't quite understand everything, but he's still trying. That's mm -hmm. what it sounds like to me. And it's like, Hey, I'll, I'll give him props for that. Even if the shit that comes out of his mouth is horrifying sometimes. Because yeah. some of the stuff is just like, I, I don't even know how to explain some of his <laughs> ideas. I'm like, you want to create an equity branch and an equity amendment to the constitution that literally has full power over every other branch of the government. Yeah. And he wrote For that uh, Atlantic article <laughs> casting the entire American situation in like there's good people and, and evil people. And there's there's no way for us to talk at all. We have to actually stamp out the evil people so that the good people will win. And, you know, the photo at the top was two mourning black people and then two shouting, uh, you know, tiki torch carrying white people. So it's just it's such yeah. a stark mannequin. I think that that's the term. Uh, yeah. Good versus evil. Uh, no, it's all black and white. And it's well, destructive. And I, no, very true. And I, I think it's funny too uh, to go back to him in the, at the same breath in that book, he calls out all the other, um, you know, woke theorists for claiming that you can't be racist against whites. So he has all this rhetoric about how it's okay to be discriminatory yeah. and he follows the, the critical theory line. And then at, at the same breath, he's like, but y'all are stupid if you think you can't be racist against white people. And like, I'm trying to like yeah. reconcile how you can believe both of those things. I thought that was very interesting. He's like grappling with these two ideas that seem to me to not even be connected. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like you would need to believe the whole suite of things in order to. Yeah. It, that it's difficult. Sense? It starts breaking down. Yeah. It starts breaking it down. Well, the trick very, is very you just much. have to redefine words at your convenience. <laughs> yeah. That'll solve everything. Yeah. Benjamin, I have to imagine as a, as a writer, that must be eternally frustrating. The fact that, uh, you know, words that you learned as a child that have a meaning and you could go to Webster's and that same meaning would yeah. be there are no longer accurate. Well, you know, it, it's not that's I don't mind that language is plastic and I exploit the plasticity of language and I make a lot of mistakes, too. I, I've, I was using one word, I think attenuate. I've been using the word attenuate for years and years, thinking that it means like antennas, like coming into contact and becoming harmonized, but it means something about like narrowing something. It, it has a totally different meaning. And somebody like pointed that out. I'm like, okay, well, hopefully people understand what I mean. You know, the, I, language is fun. You know, just like gender. Gender is fun. It's just when it becomes political, when you start to change the rules of the game, when you start to be, uh, when you start to exploit contradiction, slopsism, hyperbole towards a certain aim and then start to demand that you're your opponent not be able to, like holding yourself to a different standard than your opponent, which I see a whole lot of. I see a whole lot of contradiction in uh, in in critical justice feminism and critical race stuff and the the uh, the gender ideology where they 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 just change their position without any care for being consistent, 
but they're all consistent in destroying their opponent and getting their way. And I was speaking with a scientist, uh, a retired scientist, uh, Richard Blanchard, uh, who he does a lot of work with gender and sexuality. And, and I was talking to him about, well, why do the activists not make any sense and blah, 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 because he's a scientist. He's always under attack by the activists. He's like, the activist's job is not to make sense. The activist's job is not to produce truth or knowledge. It's to get their way. So, of course, they're not going to yeah. act according to these principles. But the problem is, is that when everybody starts acting like an activist— this gets to the, the quandary of Trumpism or white supremacy. Yeah. When everybody has no recourse but to cling to an identity, how does that shake out? When everything is about power, which is the central one of the central uh, surviving tenets of certain forms of postmodernism, when everything's about power, who's going to win? Do we really want to go there? And to what extent can we go there without going there? To what extent can CNN apologize for billions of dollars of destruction under the name of George Floyd and, and, and social justice or racial justice mm -hmm. and, and not just CNN, Michelle Obama and Biden, too? To what extent can they apologize that and then use one six-hour insurrection to, to, to justify the sweeping— uh, squashing of the right wing or conservative people, the pushing them out of the public discourse. To, to, to what degree can they ride that line of saying unity and squashing all dissent at the same time? That's the question, because there's only so far we can go. And that's why hypocrisy matters. That's why yes. being consistent and consistent to a, a certain degree, holding your principles matters. But at the same time, I'm, I'm somebody who I talk about politeness. I, I promote civil discourse, but I'm a total asshole. You know, I, I like making fun of things. Like I have my hobby horse. I say things that are mean and nasty and juvenile, and I get called out about that. So I'm not perfect. I think that there's a way to uh, cherish and uphold certain sorts of discourse without demanding that we're perfect all the time uh, to a certain degree. There's, there's like this uh, wiggle room. I just want wiggle room. And, and these people are fascistic, and they want to tamp down on any wiggle room which gets out of the way or undermines their position. Well, I think, of too, problems. kind of what you're describing is you're describing one of the core fundamental tenets of queer theory, which is to disrupt. Like, the whole point is to not make narrative sense. Like, that, that actually, there actually mm -hmm. isn't a definition of queer theory or to be queer, because to define it would yeah. not be queer, it would be normative. And so, and, and they, they even queer that they, that is, well, yeah, that itself yeah. is even too much to even say that it doesn't have any sense well, is is a, a well, form of by, normativity. It's to I was going to say because by, by definition, yeah, by de by definition, saying that it doesn't have a definition gives it a definition. Like you yeah. can make that argument because you're defining something that doesn't have a definition, right? You so know, and the problem with queer talk theory is ultimately it's not sexy. That's the problem with this shit. It's just it's not sexy, and they're like deconstructing all this stuff. They think they're cool yeah. and edgy, and at the end they don't have any humor, and they're not having any fun. And and no, so like that's one is... of my pillars, uh, my values yeah. is fun and and propriety too. Totally agree, but that that I think is the fundamental aspect of. The activism we see, um, in particular with like gender and sexuality activism, it, it's it's fundamentally queer theory, and the whole point is is near as I can tell. I've done a little bit of research, and I, I could very much be wrong, but what I have read is like it maps on exactly to everything you see in the news, mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, that's exactly what they're doing. Is from page three of 
I own a book called The Introduction to Queer Theory. It's literally a book that's given to people who take queer theory as freshmen in colleges to introduce them to it. And like on page one, it goes over the stuff we're talking about. It's like the first thing you learn is like there's no way to define it. And the whole mm -hmm. purpose is to disrupt everything. And mm -hmm. then you look at the news and Twitter and you're like, oh, Twitter is just queer theory. It's just a big ass form of queer theory. That's what it is. Yeah. And but that's the whole point, though, is it, it doesn't need to make sense, because if you think about it this way, <clears throat> the less sense that it makes, the crazier people get. The crazier everyone gets, the less borders there are, the less structure there is, the more, which makes everything more chaotic. The more chaotic it is, whoever controls the frameworks controls everything. Whoever controls the borders controls, the, it has the power. Because at some point you have to box in and everything explodes, right? Yeah. And so we've talked about this a bit before, Dan and I have with uh, um, Heath Ledger's Joker and Batman. Mm -hmm. He's the example that I think of here in that He's the one who creates all the chaos, but he controls everything, or at least he attempts to in the end. And so he's the one who dictates all of the terms and does technically have all of the power in that movie. And why? Because he's a he's an agent of chaos, as he says. That's what queer theory is. It's the whole point is to to break everything down into something that's chaotic. And then the people that pull the strings, whoever those may be, and I'm sure there's actual people who I don't think it's just a amorphous blob that's just moving in a direction. I think there's people who are actually legitimately pulling strings here but they're the ones who are going to control things once the the dust settles right they're the ones who are going to be able to sell the rubble yeah. right they own they're going to own the rubble <laughs> at the end which is which is terrifying <laughs> and sad <laughs> good old barney right <laughs> it, it's it, it's I, interesting uh moving from a trump uh executive branch to a biden executive branch because trump was very much like that he deconstructed the office of the president to quote vocal distance and uh mm -hmm. james Lindsay and, and he and i get into that um in several episodes but now we have this so-called respectable candidate biden um who i just watch and i don't see anything there but um, i don't want to take off anybody and then always to the side is kamala who's got all these identities yep. and if you actually look at her character there's nothing really there she's completely constructed but she has the yep. right form uh so we have this 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 complete parody of uh civility of of the high office it's complete we have a decrepit old man who can barely read off a teleprompter Who's all every tweet is produced by a phalanx of communications majors. And then we have this DA pro cop, uh, you know, demonstrably uh, anti minority in like practice person who's yeah. got the right conditions, who's who's hailed uh, by by the news media more uh, she, she's praised higher than than kim jong-il in by the north koreans like even like the the way that the uh it's la times they produced a whole instagram account filled with paintings of her and and like how awesome she is you know so we have completely this completely fake uh good respectable administration coming in in this completely raw and he's trump Completely authentic, completely authentic, and a complete liar at the same time. Always shooting from the hip, always stochastic, always just breaking down everything, uh, mm -hmm. just completely ruining our, our ideals. And now we have the like the pale shadow of our ideals. It, it's just we're like the postmodernism hasn't ended. It's gone up a level now. 
yeah. in a way. That, that queer theory, that constant deconstruction is now right in front of our face. And now we're watching the news media, you know, talk about Biden's ice cream flavor and, and his favorite puppy, you know, and, and giving him like like completely changing from how they treated Trump. And the, pro- the that's not the problem. It's not this hyper reality. The problem is trying to convince the reasonable good people with different points of view to treat each other respectfully and stop vilifying each other as Nazis or as libtards or whatever to get our act fucking together because those people control us insofar as we are not controlling ourselves. I agree with that 100 (laughs) percent. I think I, I think a big part of this or what's facilitating this is what was addressed in The Social Dilemma. Um, not sure if you saw that. I know it was widely received on Netflix. Um, but in I, an evolutionary I've been banning, sense... Uh, I, I've boycotted Netflix ever since their cuties thing, so I'm missing out on several documentaries. Oh, Social Dilemma is worth it. Get it, get it however you need to get it. Be creative. But um, it highlights the effect that social media has had on the culture worldwide. Um, and what, if I look at that kind of from an evolutionary sense, um, as human beings, we've evolved to communicate in a very uh, specific way, um, meaning we pay attention to lots of different cues. They say that yeah. the words you say are only 7% of the actual communication and all yeah. that kind of thing. So when you're in the presence of a human being, that's, that's what your physiology has been tuned to use for communication. Strip all that away and get you know a couple hundred characters yeah. or at best we get to stare at a screen with images that look like the people that we're talking to yeah. um that is that's so out of line with you know how we've evolved yeah. that we're seeing the repercussions of trying to meet, communicate in that way yeah. you know the echo chambers uh and the the lack of uh, uh, decorum that is allowed and frankly expected, all of that um, is breaking down uh, the society at a very fundamental level, you know, including our sense making. You know, if you, if you can't believe anything that you see or hear because you, uh, it's all bullshit. So I'm just going to listen to whatever video that was produced that happens to yeah. spark my interest. Uh, yeah. Who's this Q guy? There's a Q drop. Oh, we better check that out. Yeah, Whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that that is it's at the core of why all of this mess is happening. You know, if, if we had to have these discussions face to face, I don't think we would be in this mess at all. Yeah, I, 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 I have a lot of fun in this medium of the podcast and the video and on Twitter. And I spoke with Jonathan Peugeot, who I highly recommend for anybody who is curious of uh, about a Greek Orthodox icon carver in Canada who just talks about movies and different uh, political activities and showing the archetypal structure underneath them. But we talked about that, the responsible social media production of a self and how it's an art form. It's, it's, it's another form of media. So I think that there's too, we could go too far with criticizing our media because I'm sure when, when the scroll came out, people were decrying that people weren't talking, weren't listening to the priest anymore. They were just <laughs> reading the scroll. And when the printing press came out, you know, the, the Catholic Church hated that because now they didn't have, there was no, it was the, the word of God was now detached 
from the entire structure of the church, you know, and, and then there's a huge bunch of repercussions that happen to that. I think that there's all these repercussions, but I don't think we can go back. I don't think we can go back. Oh, no. Yeah, definitely not. And, and, so we have uh, to refigure how we go forward. That's yes, I, so I, you, I can't agree. be completely nihilistic about this medium, though I completely understand and agree with a lot of the criticism of it. But I think that we yeah, can go no, a little I, further. We just need to catch up. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I, I've literally kept food in my fridge and a roof over my head for the last 20 years simply on University of Google. You know, I taught myself web design and a bunch of other stuff, but I, yeah. you know, the access yeah. to information that we have with the internet and the ability to connect with people, that's, that, that's all great stuff. But we need to come together as a society and say, hey, yeah. since this is so different, we need to treat it differently. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Did I need to, for- did, uh, I, I just worry about the audience. Uh, so if anybody's listening out there, we were talking about Evergreen. I don't, we don't need to go back there, but I just hope that we, we, we launched off significantly. I was in the middle of something there. Did we, are we good? Can we, can we leave we, that behind? Do we, do we, should we go back? I think back? this is no. how we naturally go. Yeah, we'll okay. just flow yeah. with the conversation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you are, had yeah, something are, to, to wrap up on there, no, that'd be no, great. Okay. But yeah, don't worry about uh, okay. making too terribly much sense on this one no not at all (laughs) our big thing is we just we usually have like a topic to discuss at the top of the podcast and then and then swerve we just let so we just let it take us okay yeah exactly because we don't want to be constrained by having to stick to a certain topic no no no, let it go just trying to embrace the long form nature of it so we can let yes. it go Though where I, it needs to yeah. go. Yeah. I actually do have some evergreen questions for you. Um, before I do ask them, I was actually curious. So all everything we're talking about, um, this is the kind of shit that actually gives me nightmares. And so um, I'm actually curious what gives you nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you got the best questions. Thank you. <laughs> you were drinking when I asked that. I do apologize. Are you okay? No, it's okay. It's a really sour whiskey sour. I didn't find any sugar, so um, all my all of my facial uh, glands are in full fire right now. I'm trying to hold them back from my deluxe microphone. No what gives me nightmares? Like literally nightmares? Are we going into like Jungian nightmare land? Or are we going into like, like what really scares me? So I, I actually would I, I would prefer yeah, okay. to go into Jungian nightmare land personally because I like Jung, but um, yeah. you, <laughs> but like you can take with, it however I current events. What what fills me with anxiety and what I'm trying to manage right now is is per- perspective, and I, I when. June of 2020 came around. Uh, I, I just had Brett Weinstein on my channel to uh, celebrate, <laughs> quote unquote, celebrate the third year anniversary of his being uh, protested uh, at Evergreen. And we talked about the state of things and we talked about the themes that went critical at Evergreen and mapped them onto our time. And I remember us being pretty light. And and, uh, and then a week or two later, the uh, George Floyd um reaction started and i panicked because i saw exactly everything that i had witnessed firsthand and underwent at evergreen go on the way that everybody's attention on social media snapped down and everybody had to perform this specific ritual 
uh, around this identity, and then the riots come, and then, uh, and okay, whatever, they're crazy, and then the, the news media, like, oh, mostly peaceful, mostly peaceful, don't look behind the burning green curtain, like, whatever, but underneath <laughs> that, like, the problem with Evergreen wasn't the protest, is that the, the administration, the bureaucracy, which is the ultimate enemy of freedom, in my mind, uh, but bureaucracy is fine, we can't get away with it, most of the stuff wouldn't exist without a functioning bureaucracy, but the the critical race theory comes in behind all that smoke when the critical race theory, that's the fire, that's the fire. And all these struggle sessions start happening on zoom and all these Mm -hmm. municipalities and all this bowing down and washing of feet, this resurrection of all this ritualism that we've distanced ourselves from. We lost our religion, but it was, the code was still there. And this ignited that code. And we all started running that code. And I was in panic mode for a while there. Uh, I'm going to interview this amazing academic, Joshua Mitchell, uh, tomorrow, I think, Friday, day after tomorrow. And he had this really insightful way of uh, talking about 2020, saying that, you know, our, our society thought that death was the, the most meaningful thing. Uh, so we went into lockdown uh, to, to avoid death and to, you know, honor death because that was the most important thing. But it's not the most important thing because as soon as that George Floyd stuff happened, everybody expressed guilt. Guilt is a much stronger driving motivation than death is. And, and so you see our, our, our entire framework. It's really hard to convince people that those protests were much more important than that riot in, 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 in the short term. That riot uh, at the Capitol is going to, to lay the groundwork for this huge rift in America if we can't actually come to some sort of sense-making capacity. But to try to encapsulate that, what, what really disturbs me that I, that I try to manage my anxiety on is that narrative getting out of hand, that, that, that equity, uh, that, that neo-racism, that rebooting of racism and installing it into government and everybody being okay with it because it sounds like such a good idea. And yeah, we need to make things more than fair now. Things need to be more than fair. We need more than equality. Like, like there's some very deep values that we're straying from. And it, and and what I'm worried about is people are are accepting these these values that are actually based on some really bad ideas, but they're formulated yes. in such a way that you can't argue against them. And and these other values that have gotten us through that will get us through eventually that will survive this. They are the bad thing now. Uh, to to no, to see people based on their character to 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 strive for a more functioning meritocracy. Meritocracy itself is under threat because it's not perfect, but it's much more better yeah. than than an equitocracy or idiotocracy or, or a mediocracy, which is basically what it ultimately amounts to. Like just this idiocracy, yeah. de- degradation, degradation of everything excellent in, in human life, in this human spirit, and then in all of our outcomes from functioning bridge, bridges to, to great movies, right? So all that stuff, that's what really makes me anxious. Like how do we, what, what are we straying from? I just, I feel like we've lost something and I don't know what it is, but it's really deep. It's really deep. And I don't know how to get there with Without going through religion, and I have to figure out a way to get there without going through religion, because religion is still not acceptable. So, so th- th- that's kind of something that I'm really managing my anxiety over. 
I like it. I actually, I feel similarly. That's that's a big reason why a lot of this gives me nightmares is that I have a lot of anxiety about like. I think I know the way forward for myself, but I don't. Yeah. Like, how do we do it as people? And you brought up guilt a couple of times. Um. So I and I've talked to Dan and I've talked to some podcasts. Guilt for me is like the crux of a lot of the problems that we see. I think it's mm-hmm. it, I think it's actually the the catalyst that makes everything burn. You had mentioned that critical race theory was the fire. I would say within critical race theory and woke isms or whatever, that the actual, the actual catalyst, the heat is guilt. And, and yeah. And, and a weaponized empathy too, combined with an yeah. empathy. That's, that's Ooh, weaponized empathy. I See, like that. Yeah. And, and th- that's head. terrifying to me. And what, what I find so interesting is that if you think about it psychologically, 50% of the population are going to be tilted more towards guilty than not guilty just in, in any given time, right? You're going to, you're going to be tilted towards feeling guilty about things or feeling empathetic or having a strong negative emotion response to something yeah. than you yeah. would not having a negative response. And then the same is applied to positive responses. And then all the other psychological profile breakdowns you can think of, right? Because it's on a roughly speaking, it's on a bell curve. So, half of the white population is already going to be a little bit tilted towards guilt. And then you take into account the fact that probably about 75 to 85% of the population is going to feel some guilt if you push hard enough. And the only people who aren't really going to care are all the assholes because they're like the top 5% who don't really have any guilt. Or, um, or people who are on the autistic spectrum in some respects. Yes. Some people who are just like removed from their emotions. And I don't mean yeah. that in a negative sense. Not just assholes, but people no. who just don't, that doesn't parse for them. No, very, 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 very true. And, and so like as an example, like I'm on that, when it comes to agreeableness yeah. from a psychological standpoint, I literally rank in the first percentile, which means out of 100 people in a room, I'm less agreeable than 99 people. Oh, just naturally. And so okay. I'm I'm very social, but I have no problem saying fuck you. Oh, okay. And that's really okay. what that that's really what that amounts to. And so guilt is among other things is going to be on the other end of that agreeableness <laughs> spectrum, right? Where if you're if you're 99th percentile, you're the most agreeable. You 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 never say no. You're always going to feel guilty about things. You're a pushover. Like I can use a whole bunch I could explain it a whole bunch of different ways. But in thinking about it that way, because I've done a, a little bit of a dive, like I said, into Jung, and and I, I've read a little bit about how psychologists break things down, it doesn't surprise me the focus on guilt, because broadly speaking, if people are prone to negative emotion and are agreeable, that's going to be like 75% of the population. And so if you just push guilt hard enough, you're just going to get everybody everyone's going to feel guilty if you just push just enough well it, and the it, argument sounds just, so good it's not see you have to add to that just one caveat it's not just pushing guilt it's disallowing innocence yes it's stripping yeah, okay. I like that. certain groups yeah. of the capacity to be innocent. And that's the problem that I have with privilege and oppression uh, workshops when you're you're asked to yes. take on that mantle and hand over your guilt to somebody else that, that, that's sacred to me. My guilt is mine. That's my controlling yeah, yeah. device. That's my compass. I don't, I'm not giving give it to you because one, you're not smarter than me and you're not more aware than me. And ultimately you're not responsible for my life and I am. So I'm not going to give you my, <laughs> my code to, to, to evaluate what's good or, or bad. No, very, very true. Yeah. I, I, and I, I, I always found that very interesting though, that 
that underlying focus on guilt. It's never really mentioned. Like, I've yet to read anywhere within critical race theory or queer theory or it's any always of that implicit stuff. though. Yeah, it's, it's implicit though. It, it, it's straight up guilt, and it, you you get a lot of people because. Robin D'Angelo at Evergreen said, I don't want you to feel guilty. She's totally lying. I don't want you to, if, if <laughs> yeah, it makes I know. you do good, right. then good, but don't get lost in your guilt. While the whole time she's like manipulating people's guilt and their outrage and yeah. their, their, their surrogate offendedness. And then, and then what it does to uh, the marginalized, the underrepresented, the minority communities, what this whole thing does to minorities is strip them of their agency. They are nothing but a reaction to, to white people. Like it completely, it, it, it completely boxes them in. I mean, it, it degrades, uh, you know, uh, the soft bigotry of low expectation, but there's a hard bigotry yeah. underneath that, that they are less than human. They're nothing but our children that we have to coddle yeah. and, and worship and put on. It's, it's, it's really twisted stuff. It's really twisted stuff. It is, and it very rarely comes up. This is one of the things that I, I liked about, uh, one of the few things I liked about Ibram Rex Kendi's book is that he actually calls that out in his book. He's like, if if everything is based upon what white people do, then then blacks in particular, but pe- you know, communities of color have no agency. Yeah. So what you're saying is that you literally can't have power. So what, what kind of a, a message is that going to send to the kids? It's like, oops, you, you literally can't do anything. What a Good nest luck. of contradictions that guy is. He's like he's staring, yeah. <laughs> he's staring no, he, like, like I the said, truth in the very face. weird book. Yeah, and then he has all these other arguments that make no sense. But I remember like coming across that chapter, and I'm like, I'm like, fuck yeah, Ibram, like you got it right, like that's totally correct. No hmm. one talks about it, but it's like, of course, like sure, say white people or just people in general are guilty of doing all sorts of reprehensible things. Yeah, but. To, to say that we're so bad that everything is based on what we do because of systemic issues completely takes away the agency of every person who doesn't conform to that system. It's it's And you just yeah, never talk about it, and it's like it never... That's the biggest problem I see is it's like, okay, well, now you have a bunch of people who want pe- everyone else to do stuff for them yeah. because they can't do anything on their own because they're, yeah. they're not able to. And it's like that's yeah. never... Sometimes that's true, but... It's, uh, you guys keep go going. To, I will be right back. Okay. To get back to uh, what Biden's doing, um, I, I don't know to what extent, but he's using the rhetoric. He's he's using all the, the ideas of equity. If you look at where equity comes from, it comes mm-hmm. from critical race theory. So mm-hmm. whether or not he means equity or not, I don't know, whatever. And I don't know who I'm arguing with in my head, but I am uh, trying to, you know, trying to say he's he's this is the dog whistle. This is the dog whistle. He's using equity. It means all this stuff. And uh, ultimately, one of my main attacks against equity, these offices of, of equalization, uh, you know, uh, you know, reparation It's basically reparation on, on a very micro scale that ultimately they think that they can it's hubristic they think that they can implement an office of karma and and just a right karma and it it, they're drawing it there's something so universal and primordial about our guilt about sin that we evolved religion to take care of to lift it out of the apparent body and and to allow this supernatural force whether it's satan tempting us mm-hmm. and or god forgiving us but it, it it lifts us out of having to exact the price 
for past reparations to exact the price of difference, of different outcome, or different uh, looking, or different cultures, different sounding, different smells. We, we're, we're disgusted by difference. We're revolted by the other. And so we want to, we, we, our natural inclination is to destroy the other. And, and, and to, 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 to refine it through all this academies and then to peg all this civil rights stuff on it, the full force of the civil rights, right side of history movement on it, is ultimately, it's a spiritual process. And, and it's hubristic to think that the government can settle our debts for us when they can't even settle their own fucking debts, right? They can't even balance <laughs> their own debts. They think that they can, they can balance history. They can't even balance the budget, you know? So it's so hubristic. And, and it, furthermore, it's, mm -hmm. it's out of line because it, it's, it's all a smokescreen for a bunch of other neoliberal, neocon, globalist agenda. You know, I don't want to go down that route, but that's ultimately what what's going to be the winner in this while we fight yeah. amongst ourselves. What it reminds me of is um, it reminds me of kind of the age old and I don't necessarily want to completely compare the uh, critical race theory and the like to to communism and the socialist utopia. There's some obviously some some parallels, but it, it's not the same thing. But it reminds me of the age old argument that um, of communism hasn't really been tried. Socialism hasn't been attempted yet. That's why. You hear that argument all the time, and the reason for that yeah. the, the, is, is, the, is the underlying hubris that you're talking about of these people think that they could usher in that utopia, which is basically yeah. what you're talking about near as I can tell is it's like yeah. we have the power to settle the sins. We believe that we can settle sins. We can settle everyone's debt, as it were, um, appropriately, and we're the ones who could usher that in. And the amount of – it's kind of the same parallel to me of like – I can't, I don't understand the hu like I'm a very proud individual. I have a lot of pride in myself and I'm very sure of myself, but I don't want any power more than is necessary. And I don't even know what that looks like. I teach kids at jujitsu and that's more power than I want half the time, mostly because it's kids and kids can be, they can kind of suck sometimes, but is it, a kindergarten yeah. teacher. I'm sure, I'm sure you can understand <laughs> it can be a little hard to deal with, but it's like, I don't understand the hubris of some people thinking that they deserve and want and should have the kind of power to make those big ass decisions. Mm, yeah. Like it, it, it's crazy to me that there are, it's always the people who, like, who have a vacuum inside of them that, that want to suck up the most power. It's like the worst yeah. people. <laughs> it's like <laughs> if you have sufficient amount of power and responsibility and understand how to balance those things, you're probably suited to upgrade slowly into a uh, yeah. executive decision over a company over, over a municipality. Um, and then with, with, constant checks and balances and always have to pay for your mistakes forgiveness but you always have to see yeah. the outcomes of what you're doing so that you're always attenuated that little decisions have big effects and that's the thing with communism that was overlooked a lot not just ex accepting uh like uh, a number of different problems centralized authority making these ideas based on you know their good reasoning or whatever their ideological reasoning uh, but having so much power that their one little decision completely changes such a complex system that it usually destroys everything because the system itself yeah. has been evolved and it constantly tuning itself in ways that you can't know. You cannot know. So I don't know. I don't, I can't even, 
I can't even account for all of my sins. I don't even know, like, the ones that really count. I don't know. But I'm not going to tell them to you, especially uh, yeah. not you, but, like, to, to my, uh, you know, equity uh, censor or whatever. I'm not going to tell them to you because you're not going to forgive them. You're just going to tell me uh, how many Hail Marys of reparations I'm going to have to do, you know, in front of everybody else. I'm no longer giving them up to God or to a transcendent ideal. You take out the word God if, if that upsets you. I'm no longer— taking them out of the system and throwing them away. I'm, I'm keeping them in the system and I'm causing this feedback loop of guilt and repercussion and, and resentment, resentment, resentment. And that's what happened at Evergreen. They bottled yeah. all of that resentment up and, and then it attacked itself and it destroyed everybody. It destroyed the institution. It destroyed everybody who came into contact with that and went along with it, whether just on the level of their reputation or how well they slept at night. Because of so all that resentment, you, was no, it, there was no way to grace. There was no grace. There was no ex- sure. exception. Can you talk a bit more about that? Uh, I'm curious um, if you've kind of kept tabs on the professors and the students who were a part of this. Um, you had yeah. mentioned before the, the podcast that uh, we started that you, you had done uh, a bit more research and you may be coming out with some new material. And I'm curious if you can maybe speak to you know how everyone's doing have you been able to interview any of the students who uh actually led the protests like jameel and is it shamarica am i getting their name america right? yeah shamarica that's right that's right yeah um, and a few of the others have you were you ever able to uh interview naima Lowe and rashida love and uh, um i forget the guy's name uh, uh that um felix was the head of the equity felix yeah yeah he's now the the equity head at uh, washington state university in vancouver um i'm curious if you've had a chance to like keep up with them what see is, how they're what is doing. He doing now? He's the head of He's, what? Uh, he, he, like the, the equity department at uh, Wazoo, Vancouver. I looked him up one day to see if he was still at Evergreen, and he uh, he had been hired to lead their like equity department. It, it's that may not be the name for, it, but it's he's it's all the same words. Like you can, I'll try and pull it up here really quick. But uh, um, it's what's amazing. His last name? Brafith, B R A F, B R B R A F. F I T H. Oh my God. It's such a scam. It's such a scam. All these, like these equity departments, like there's no, there's no responsibility for totally fucking up generations of people. We don't call it a scam. We refer to it as an emerging market. (laughs) (laughs) So he is the, uh, he's the director of student equity. How much do you guys have into GameStop, by the way? How much, how much stock have you guys put into (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm just watching. Okay, just watching. Yeah. Like. No, I I, uh, I I don't have any money into it. Um, I'm technically on furlough and have been through through all of COVID, and so uh, yeah. I've been holding my money. I'm waiting to see what I'm supposed to do with my taxes before I put any money in anything. Um, because I don't yeah. want to like invest all the money that I don't need, and then the government's like, "Well, we're going to tax you more than we thought," and so. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just kind of like waiting for the next few months and then I'll be able to, I won't be putting it in the GameStop unless it tanks again. But yeah, I, to, to answer your question, I, um, the, the major fault of my documentary is that I'm involved in the documentary and the way in which this shook out was that I was a white supremacist. Um, so there's a huge disconnect between me and the other side of the story. 
And uh, so I haven't been able to interview any of the people that you mentioned and their stories are their stories. Added to that is an attitude among the protesters that they put themselves in uh, lethal danger uh, because of the right wing mob that Brett Weinstein uh, elicited. And so to come out and to explain their behavior is to put themselves on some sort of target list. Uh, So there's all these justifications. Furthermore, the professors, I was excommunicated from the whole thing. Uh, I, was, I was outside looking in, and, and I have some leads that have fed me information, and I have some amount of cowardice for not really putting myself out there and knocking on their doors and saying, will you, will you, uh, will you let me interview you? So I only know tertiary secondhand accounts and social media, um, just looking, uh, watching on social media for how those people have shooken out. Um, I do know to, to specifically with regards to the story, what I think does matter to the story directly is that the lead protesters of the, you know, the, the evergreen insurrection, uh, they were put on the main protesters were put on the board of uh, revising the student code of conduct. They were submitted to uh, restorative justice. So they weren't really, nobody was punished. Uh, Jamil, who's one of the most flamboyant out there mm-hmm. proponents, uh, was put in charge of orienting the next group of freshmen on matters of race. And I wasn't, they didn't film that. I didn't get the film of that, but I heard that he just basically bitched about white people wearing the wrong earrings and the wrong hairstyle and how that literally is killing uh, black people uh, to, oh, to you know, appropriate their culture and stuff like that. So ultimately, it's a stain on this entire movement that there is no accountability because— Accountability is white supremacist. Accountability is some form of normativity. To have to to admit to their mistakes is to say that their ideology was wrong, and they can't do that. Uh, they can't mm-hmm. do that. I don't know if they can do that personally, but I know that as an institution, it can't do that institutionally because the equity agenda is a part of Washington government. And if they were to admit that it was a failure, they couldn't implement it like they are doing across all the colleges and within the Washington state government. So they can't admit their fault. They can only say that everything that they did was misunderstood. They they can't. There's no there's no other option for them, Um, which means that this entire thing is a lie. The the, the entire thing is a lie. The, The entire cake is some sort of souffle that eventually will implode on itself and lead to more, uh, what, what is it, more racism and exclusion than it ever set out to, to, to overcome in the long run. But yeah, there's you stories to tell about Naima Lowe too. She's, she's now suing her, uh, <laughs> she's now suing this artistic collective in Tulsa who, who gave her a grant uh, to bring out there for being racist. So she's just replicating her everybody hates her Ideology. I don't know what happened to Jamil. I know Shamarik is a teacher now in Washington State. Um, you know, so every and and there's other two protesters uh, who are very comedic. Um, uh, tra- these couple trans individuals, one's in a wheelchair, the other one's kind of the henchman, R and Lawrence. They're now producing porn yeah. on the internet uh, on Twitter, uh, which is really <laughs> weird. It's like soapy bottoms. Oh, it's like really weird stuff, and they show up to <laughs> Olympia Council meetings and. 
and ream out the uh, the mayor uh, for for destroying trans individuals and stuff. It's really it's really they're they're continuing in the vein of Evergreen uh, protesting uh, you know the, the clowns of of the show. Do you foresee the college having to close due to lack of funding and low enrollment in like the immediate future? I know the enrollments tanked quite precipitously in the last yeah. few years. Is that 50% now? Yeah. Yeah. And it will go lower. Um, George Bridges is leaving this summer. He will get away scot-free with his, uh, I don't know, $300,000 times five. Um, yeah, 300000 whatever the math is. So a, a million and a half bucks, he'll get away with that. I mean, minus taxes and stuff like that. Uh, he'll leave the college in shambles. The college has doubled down on its social justice ideology. I get reports from students uh, infrequently that it's just a wasteland and it's, it's not a fun place to be because identity politic rules every conversation. I do know that professors, uh, the ones who have values that I know of, are very disheartened um, by what happened there and are now seeing it being replicated across America and they're really worried <laughs> I, I know one one uh, amazing individual who thinks that it's just fucked now that we're gonna have to go into blue and red lockdown like there's there's no there's no way that the narrative is too broken between yeah. rural uh, the rural reds and the elite blues and and the, it, it's we're in, a, in the middle of the process of divorce I don't know to what extent that's true but to to witness evergreen and then watch it be replicated across america you're like well what do you do we were wrong we thought we would win we thought exposing it to sunlight would would show people that it's a warning sign not to go there like the canary but either people don't know about it or it's too inconvenient sure um you had talked in the uh in one of the episodes i think it was like the last one you went over um the struggle session that occurred in one of your classes. Yeah. And it was Professor Wallach, I think I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. So I had two questions about that struggle session. If anyone who's listening, it's episode 22, Evergreen episode 22, listen to it. It's absolutely absurd, and it actually points out a lot of the contradictions that we're talking about. Uh, just to give an example, because we haven't actually really expressed too many contradictions. One of the students literally tells a white student to shut the fuck up, um, but also to talk more. Yeah, your, your so, silence is literally killing us. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, that was the, that was the double Sorry, bind yeah, we, right. were, we were put in. We we're like, okay. And they were actually asking, and they're actually like, the student asks, is like, will you tell me to shut up when I talk? But then when I'm quiet, it's violence. And then they never actually answered the questions. Just to give you an idea of like some of the contradictions that come up. Um, the two questions I have is, you had mentioned that you didn't, you'd waited to release the footage in the name of the professor because you were worried about ratting him out because he, he had like threatened people and yeah. i didn't know if he had came back after this was released and he had threatened you and then i was also curious um the same professor had mentioned during the struggle session that one of the students was almost murdered and i was curious yeah. if you knew what he was talking about because you didn't address it in the episode and so i was just i was wondering yeah. if that was basis of, if there was like if there was like a um that was based on something or if he was just kind of talking out his ass yeah, I, I have not received any uh, repercussions for that yet. I do have a little bit of worry, but at the same time, a government employee coming after somebody for uh, exposing them, 
is won't look good. Uh, I, I think I have yeah. good legal grounds to be protected in, in the long term. So I don't think that I'll and, and I don't take any pleasure in ratting him out. And I didn't want to do that. But of course, I just felt that I I, I still feel bad that I, I did that. And I, I published his name and I dock effectively doxed him um, for what it's worth, um, because he was he was pretty nice to me. Um Personally, but that that just being exposed to that, just being in a in a, in a in a college environment that turned into the worst, most pathetic sort of like twelve step program or some sort of like struggle session. But it's not just a struggle session. There's this, and I saw that. That's one of the disturbing things that I saw was that this social justice ideology implemented at the level of an institution, it's a pity party. It's just everybody's just sitting around like wallowing in pity, you know, and, and guilt. And just like, it's just so pathetic and disgusting. It's just so disgusting and dirty. Um, and and a total betrayal of, of excellence and awesomeness. Um so no no uh, repercussions on that. What what was the other question? The professor had mentioned during that session that one of his students was almost murdered. Yeah, and then I didn't know if you could elaborate if you knew what he what he was talking about. Yeah, um, I the, the, another caveat for anybody who's watched the series and uh, you know wants to know more about it is that there is many claims throughout the footage that Evergreen is a racist and sexist school. And nothing is ever substantiated by the complainants. No, nothing is ever substantiated by the protesters of what exactly Evergreen has done. So it could be it, everything that they have said, if you look at it, it's a lie. But there could be a lot of stuff there that I can't find because even though Evergreen is a state college and is in, in Washington, to a certain degree, is incredibly generous with giving uh, the citizens access to the documents of these institutions, but they can figure out how to get around that. I have—if I have, uh, there's a lawyer out there, contact me because there are uh, public records requests that they've been sitting on for three years now, almost four years now. So I know that it's $5 a page per day that they owe me after 90 days not getting it to me. So I have like a—there's probably a million-dollar lawsuit there uh, if, if I have find the right <laughs> lawyer. I'm not necessarily saying that I want to sue, but they've been sitting on that information, which is a really good way to stop transparency from happening technically uh, to, yeah. to get out of that. Anyways, point is, is that any complaint from a student against another student or against the institution is locked under uh, freedom uh, uh, FERPA, which is a uh, privacy act. So you can't you can see what the institution does, but you can't see anything about the students. So if there was a murder or a threat of a murder, I I don't know. I do know talking to the chief of police that year that there was no violence that entire year outside of the protests, that there was no assault. There was one torn poster. Some crazy person came on campus and tore a poster out of somebody else's hand. That's the only act of violence on that campus, whereas the protesters were saying that people are getting raped and murdered everywhere. So I don't know to what extent the professor was hamming it up, and it did seem to me in that percentage that he was really leaning into stoking our emotions and getting us into this very trance light, like, um, 
what is called psychodrama state. He was he was pushing us into a, a state of psychodrama, and and it, it okay. was really bad acting. But you can tell if you really listen to it and you kind of turn down the racial or you you objectively look at like all what they're talking about with race. You, you see a lot of bad acting and a lot of hyperinflated emotions and a lot of just weird uh, sophomoric psychologic psychology experiment going on particularly in that yeah. so I don't know to what extent he was actually being honest because I, I don't necessarily trust him uh, as an honest okay. actor in that situation have you received a lot of like threats and vitriol from people from this endeavor um, I do know I, uh, oh no um, no, I, I do know that it's, uh, the way that it works out is that if you are against this stuff, you're with the enemy. So I'm basically known, I do know that I'm known as a white supremacist that you're not supposed mm -hmm. to talk to. Uh, if you're, you're officially alt-right now, aren't you? Well, I was alt-right. I think I was a darling of the alt-right. I don't know if I actually okay. made it there, but I think that was, uh, <laughs> somebody's talking about Brett Weinstein's Adjacent at least, huh? I'm, yeah, I'm adjacent. So the way that this stuff operates is that. Instead of confronting the contradictions, uh, one, instead of confronting the outcomes, the actual outcomes, they're all about equality of outcome. But if they but instead, like no true communism fallacy uh, or communism mm. hasn't been tried yet. It's like, no, that, that wasn't that wasn't it. Like like that was just no. Some some people got it wrong. They don't understand. So anybody who's pointing out the contradiction and saying, OK, look, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened and just showing it all happening. Like anybody who who then if that narrative doesn't add up to supporting them, th there's something wrong in that person or that narrative. There's there's no way for them to confront it. So it's built into this, or some some reason they fostered this attitude uh, that that they can't be wrong because they're on the right side eventually. They can't be wrong yeah. in the moment or in the past, but because eventually they'll be right. I'm glad you haven't received many threats and things. Though that's one of the things I was. Well, let's not I'm let's not jinx it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't worry, we don't have a huge audience yet. Well, so, so <laughs> on that note, like since you're a darling of the alt right and a white supremacist, given the new changes that have occurred in the new war that's been uh, um, declared upon, you know, white white supremacy in the U.S., I think Dan and I might be fucked because we're going to get tagged into it, and then our podcast is then going to get. Oh shut yeah, down. no, you guys <laughs> are Dude, bring it, bring it. That's fine. <laughs> I'm, I am totally fine with that designation. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited for the for the for the moment that uh, Apple Podcast shuts us down and they get a call from my mom, who's probably our only listener, and she like <laughs> freaks the fuck out when she's like, "Why the fuck did you take my son off the internet?" <laughs> she's not she's not the kind of woman that you want or person that you really want to mess with. <laughs> Well, you know, there, there's something I will say just in terms of uh, being branded alt-right and, and all that crap. Um, I do want to express that one of the things that really pisses me off the most about all of this going so fucking sideways is that there are some legitimate concerns with the way race is handled in the country. Yes. Um, and, and not with all the crazy drama going on, right, but just in general. Um, and just for the, you know, I have, I have personal experience. I was a better relationship away from having a mixed family myself. Mm. Um, and, and there are things that I didn't know. There, there, there are blind spots that I had that had to be illuminated. And I think for me, 
that was part of what allowed me to get guilted in for a couple of weeks when George Floyd all went down. Um, and hearing Robin D'Angelo say things like white fragility, because there's absolutely been times that I was defensive because uh, someone I cared about had an experience and I tried to write it off. Ah, no, it's not really like that. I made those yeah. mistakes. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think that's a conversation that does need to happen in a lot of uh, households. However, it's getting so overshadowed and it's getting it, it's getting blown up by orders of magnitude, whereas, you know, a, something like uh, making a comment about a black woman's hair. It doesn't make you a fucking white supremacist, but it might make you rude. Yeah. You know, how about just don't do that? And I, I think there are, there are places in society where, you know, those conversations need to be had. And that is all going to be absolutely uh, missed by the taking of sides, either, you know, you're racist or anti-racist and, and yeah. all of the uh, conflict that comes from that, that ultimately it's going to hurt the minority peoples that are having to deal with this more than it's going to help them. So not only is it trying to paint everybody that's white as a white supremacist, but it's going to backfire and make conditions considerably worse for black and brown folks. And I find that eternally frustrating because hmm. I, I do want to help the black society. I, yep, they got it. Yeah. They got a bad shake. We got some stuff that needs fixing. It is absolutely better than it has been. We're pointed in the right direction, but we are in no yeah. way done. Yeah. But when you make it so extreme, when you are forced to take a side, are you racist? Are you anti-racist? And if you don't answer, we're going to answer for you. Then that's going to you know yeah. split people and have to take their sides. And just make things worse. And I, I just, it pisses me off so much because it paints me as a type of person who is uh, against black people when I'm actually for black people. And what these, uh, what the social justice warriors are doing is fucking it up for black people. Mm -hmm. The I liked what, go ahead, go ahead, Benjamin. I agree with you. And the tactical, um, my tactic on that is to, uh, what is it? Um, to preserve that conversation in the midst of the critique. And that's why in my evolution as a YouTube sensation, I have pivoted from being a critic of Evergreen into a conversationalist via my interviews. And to find voices, to play the identity politic, to find voices on my terms have those conversations and then perform positive, respectful listening, right? Perform all those values, you know, listen, active listening and all that stuff that they do outside of the bounds of their manipulation. The, by which I mean there, I mean the, the social justice ideology, the equity, diversity, inclusion, the HR departments, all that stuff. To tithe a portion of my work to listening to these other people and to show how the conversation, hopefully, not every time, but to avoid all the social justice warriors, just not even deplatform them, but just like cut to the point, cut to the chase, get, uh, you know, a black woman on, talk to her about her black femaleness. But that that can only in a podcast form that can only last for, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I mean, it, there's depth to it. But eventually that identity category melts away from both of us and the listener and us, too, as the primary conversa converse conversance 
experience each other in communion with each other that, that on that deeper level. And that deeper yeah. level guides us. That individual you know, meeting of two people guides us. Not these ideologies, not this framework, not even history, not even personal experience. That, that, that momentary instance of one person talking and listening to the other person guides us in a completely different, uh, different direction and frees us from this grand narrative that would have us treat each other as political units in order to affect political change. But, but by resetting the conversation in one-to-one dialogue, then we can go, go forth and then make better decisions and be more educated, be more sympathetic without you know, ceding my respectability or ceding my integrity via this system that promises justice out the other side, but through a more natural process that's rooted, I think, in the core of the American fabric was that individuals were working together to build a country. And yeah, we made mistakes and we didn't treat each other like individuals, but that work can happen outside of their framework. No, I agree. And uh, preach it brother. Yeah, no, I, I, that's (laughs) a big part of what we're trying to do with, with, (laughs) of course we love it. And that's a big part of what we're trying to do. What I think is very interesting is that, all the reasons that you enumerated as to why you like to talk to people is are the all, the all the reasons why you don't see the you know woke the woke movement do what it is that we're doing is because after what do you say ten minutes after a short period of time the stuff that you bring initially washes away and then you you really get to the actual depth or more depth maybe more depth is probably a better way to put it and basically what that does is it dissolves and renders the arguments that they're making naked, bare, and useless. Well, actually, when they do persist for too long, you can, if you expose yourself to one of those mm-hmm. sessions that goes on too long, it starts to really get—you start feeling bad. Like, the proof is really in the pudding. Like, if you come out of an hour-long session of people talking about race and you feel light, then something happened good. If you feel heavy, then something happened yeah. that was wrong. If it's making you, if this conversation is making you feel heavy, then it, then it's, then it's being used to manipulate you. Then it's being yeah. used to degrade us into our camps. And you can feel that. You can really feel that. If it makes you feel expansive, then there's something going right. If it makes you feel tighter and defensive, th- then that, that white fragility, if it's leaning into that, yeah, you, you, there are points where you do have to go through that defensive stuff. But if you're in a good conversation and a good relationship, that defensiveness, you'll get through that. You'll, you'll put that aside on your own terms rather than it being used to twist you like D'Angelo mm-hmm. does. No, very, very true. It's a good metric. I have, I have, yeah. I have uh, cause I know you have a, you have to get off around uh, here soon. And so I, I had one question. Time. Yeah. <laughs> I had one question myself before. Um, and I'll give it over to Dan to see if he has any last questions. I'm curious what uh, myself or Dan and I both, if Dan wants to do it as well, can do to, to help. Like you've put in a lot of work um, to shed a lot of this to light I don't know if you're technically considered a member of the IDW, but as far as I can tell, you're at least IDW is dead, man. Long to live the well, IDW. I know, yeah. Sam <laughs> left. It's that, all over, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Jordan but, dropped out. We can, we can, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, it very much is, but IDW in light post-mortem. Of, yeah. In light of all the people who were initially kind of lumped into that, I, I, yeah. I've always kind of considered you to be at least tangentially related, if not one of them. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'm curious, 
as someone who's watched all that for years and is trying to um, get in, talk more about this stuff, what is it that we can do to, to, to do our part to contribute, right? Like you put in a lot of work, like where should I start outside of reading critical race theory? Oh, which is what I do. Like in besides just doing the talks that we do, like, do you have any yeah. recommendations for myself? Like, um, I really well I think you guys are on the right track I mean I think it's conversation I think it's conversation I have a lot of work to do I have a lot of work to do this year I'm trying to get the first principles so I'm reading my Tocqueville and I gotta go in and read like Jefferson and you know like Hamilton and get into like the the beginning we have to go back yeah. into first principles because America is at stake America itself is at stake and if we want to understand if it's something we want to continue, we need to understand what it is that needs to continue. And if we want to understand whether or not this stuff is an existential threat to our country, then we need to understand if it is or if it's not or if it's a new direction. So I, I try to check myself. Is Biden going to implement an office of equity? Yes. Is that office of equity going to be stacked with ideologues? Yes. Is it going to make it past the courts? I don't know. Is it going to meet resistance and adapt and become actually inclusive? I don't know. But there's an opportunity for it to be. There's an opportunity to not just be a critic, but to propose something better and to and to play the postmodernist, to take their words and just twist it just a little bit to get back into what I think is the better path. So what can you do? Follow your inspiration. Follow your inspiration. Listen to your gut. Reach out to people that make you excited. Produce content. Produce good content. And get people on your show that are great. People that, that are known quantities and people that are unknown quantities. I think there's a lot of work to do in the academic sphere of, of finding those academics who are holding the torch of knowledge and, and giving them a platform and waking them up to this whole new media. Because I don't think that they understand the power that they have just by having all this knowledge and perfecting their conversational skills. And then putting them into this domain can really do a lot of work down the road. Sweet. Those That's what I'll be doing then. Beautiful. Well, I will use that as a segue uh, for my final question. Benjamin, who are you plugged into? Meaning, you know, who are you oh, listening no. to? What are the conversations? Oh. Um, you know, there's the known names. I'm wondering if there are any other. Uh, yeah. Who are you plugged into? Uh, right now, I'm prepping for my Joshua Mitchell um, interview, and he's got a couple of fantastic talks on Tocqueville. And there's there's a couple of talks that he's given that I highly recommend, and they're on my community page. One's on my community page on my uh, if you go to my YouTube channel and then you flip over to the community tab. I posted one there. I really like him. He wrote a book called uh, American Awakening that's pretty short uh, that I just finished the audiobook uh, of. He's somebody that I'm uh, looking into, and I always draw a blank. When this question's asked, and then later on while I'm cooking dinner, I'm like, why didn't I plug that person? <laughs> Let me look at my calendar. Because I, you know well, what? Who, who I, do you listen to regularly? I mean, are there podcasts that you listen to regularly just for consumption rather than potential interviews? Yeah. See, the problem is, is that I'm uninterested in anything that I can't manipulate. If I can't make material, I don't, I don't like, I'm not interested in it. This okay. is a big problem for me. Like, I can't just sit around listening to things. Like, I have to listen with a purpose. Um, 
Let me look at my calendar really quick. I, I you know, I, I think that there's a lot of work to do to boost up uh, black and Latino conservatives and give them a voice. I think that they're going to be the Shout out to McWhorter. Mm-hmm. McWhorter, hopefully I'll get Lori on soon. Uh, John, uh, Glenn Larry, I love him. Um, there's a lot of people going on. Um, so I just work by themes. Wh- who do I listen to? That's a good question. Why don't I listen to more people? <laughs> I only like <laughs> listening to people that I can ask questions of, you know? You guys are really good interviewers. It, it's uh, it's interesting because I, I had this – it was weird. I, I kind of fell into interviewing. I just kind of had a knack for it, and I could just open people up on my channel, and so that's what I've been pursuing. And then people have me on to interview me, and it's always dicey. It's like, are these people going to listen to me, or th- is this an opportunity for them to talk? You never know because some people have you on, and then they'll talk the whole time, and you're like, you just wanted an audience, and I'm not going to get any ad revenue out of this particular one. <laughs> so, <laughs> why am I, here? I want my $10. <laughs> well, I tell you, ultimately, and you know, we've, we've joked that the, the podcast is not big, and that's absolutely true. The, the original purpose that Bo and I got together um, mm-hmm. was really to have the conversations. Yeah. I happen mm-hmm. to have the technical background and some equipment and all that so we can yeah. turn it into a podcast. But even if nobody listens, it's the conversations that, that we come for. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 really, I think that keeping that as the core value, hopefully will pay off in, in growing this into some, some valuable definitely, content. Definitely, there's no reason not to make a video version and put it onto YouTube. It's a couple extra steps. I know it's a See headache, but there's huge Bo-Bo? audience. Are you listening? Is Bo, huge job? audience, Bo. <laughs> the YouTube I've, I've got cameras and stuff. Faults, I can absolutely do that. For all its faults, YouTube's algorithm is amazing at hooking you up with people. I don't know how long that's yeah. going to last, but it's an amazing audience generator. I know it's it's something we've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> it's just two extra steps. Oh, well, maybe three or four, depending on if you have a career, <laughs> you have to do. Yeah. It's no, like 20 that's... for me because I've actually done some filmmaking, so I can't do it half-assed, but... Oh, I am really? all for it. Let's let's That's put out shame. some video content when you're ready, Bo. When you're ready. Yeah, no. <laughs> but I, I was, like so I was initially. You're not ready to show your glorious mug. Well, I was initially. I was a, I was initially reticent um, because I didn't want like my big concern is that uh, we talk about things that you're not supposed to talk about, and then everyone gets upset. And then if we're, you can also see our faces, then it becomes more of a problem. And then after like the third after like the third episode we did it, it stopped being an issue, um, yeah. Because you just get you get comfortable talking, and so it, like yeah. now I'm not as concerned with it. Even though I'm the more and more we do of these podcasts, the more and more I'm sure that someone's going to hear it and be like, "That's offensive. You can't talk about that stuff. That's that's not what the left believes." Yeah, we be better be offending somebody if we're not. Yeah. Even though even, even though we're both wrong. left, even though both Dan and I are on the left, and it you know yeah. we, we have we're we're, we're progressive leaning. Um, yeah. it, like it doesn't I, matter. And that was my fear I, initially. Yeah, I, I do. There's a, I don't know why I haven't gotten more blowback. So I think ultimately I'm not that relevant. And that's why I haven't been canceled yet. Uh, people, there's something about yeah. what I'm doing. That's just not a threat to them, which means I'm not that important. So I get to do, keep on doing what I do and very slowly grow my art audience in the dark. Every once in a while, somebody comes on or they'll <laughs> say something nasty about me, which is usually untrue. They, I haven't yeah. been, I haven't done anything wrong yet. I'll, uh, I'll push back on that. I, I wouldn't say you're not a threat or irrelevant. I, what I think it is, 
it's how you explain things. Most people who explain what you're explaining, they explain it in similarly to how, say, wokists or progressives or whatever explain things. It's in absolute terms and it's like a big deal. In combative. In combative. Like you don't come across as a combative individual. So even if you're explaining something, if you're pointing to the the student protesters who overreacted like two-year-old children and you're like, these are children who are acting like fucking children. (laughs) And even though that's going to piss off a lot of the left because they're liberal, you do it in such a way where you don't come across as like this huge smug asshole Right. You just come across as like okay. they're being silly. Like, look at them. Like, here's here's a five minute video of them being children. Tell me they're not being children. <laughs> trust just me. I was it. I worked in preschool yeah. for 12 fucking years. I know what a child's <laughs> like. Yeah. This is what it is. But that's you're the thing is like authority on the topic. You, you, you come across as like you're not like they're being children and nothing you can say will change my mind. And it, just take my word for it. You're like because you don't talk that much in your in the episodes like you. You have your moments, yeah. but. Most of it's yeah. the footage from the students themselves. And you're like, in this situation, you see a bunch of students doing stupid shit. Like, and it's very clear that they're being silly because they're, you listen to them when they're being yeah. silly. And yeah. so I, I think that's part, I, I think it's more that than any Well, in, any in that vein, then I don't think your, your style, either of yours styles are terribly different from mine. You guys are not judgmental people. You have questions no. and you laugh. So I don't worry about getting canceled uh well and if you are just be a self uh self you know boost uh, get a business that you run yourself you know right right exactly that well i'm a ghost on social anyway i i wouldn't even know if i were canceled so (laughs) yeah i'm not worried about it (laughs) you're maybe behind the scenes that's right now the the, uh, then i guess next step then is to uh to set up uh set up youtube get a little banner nice little mug yeah, I, I love I love interviewing free. people. So it's yeah. um, I'm all about trying to find different people. I don't care what they believe politically or what they believe ideologically or spiritually. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. So I just like talking to people like like Dan mentioned, the re, the real the main reason for me why I started this is that I have a lot of ideas and no one and I don't have a, like a, many people to talk to about them. So I wanted. Yeah, I wanted an avenue to sort of talk about all my ideas versus pacing my living room and talking them out loud by myself and driving my girlfriend crazy. Yeah. She'll be in the other room and I'm like talking to myself, like trying to rationalize, like just a random idea and she'll <laughs> pop her head out of the bedroom and be like, you're crazy. Why are you talking to yourself? And it's like, talk to me about communism. And she's like, I don't want to talk about communism. And then I'm like, then go back in the room and I'll, and I'll, cause I have like an idea in my head. And so now I have Dan for, I have Dan for that. Dan he can, can talk be to me there. about communism, <laughs> and, and he'll he'll nod and he'll he'll respond back, and 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 then I don't feel so crazy, um, and so it helps me just kind of like get the ideas. Like you were saying about guilt, and and such, you want to get everything out into the ether so you can kind of absolve yourself of it and then move on. Yeah. It's the same way with me with ideas. I want to like talk them out and get them out into the open, yeah, and then move on. And I'll come back to them and then reconstruct them and deconstruct them and criticize them and then make them better because my ideas aren't perfect and they never will be. But um, as it evolves, like I like talking to people who also want to do that, which is a big part of why I want to talk to you is that you're, you strike me as someone who's very curious. Yeah. And so ultimately I was like, I, I like talking to curious people because I'm a very curious individual and, 
And now we've we've almost killed two hours of time, which is very quick. Good job, guys. We did two thirds yeah, of a Rogan. Uh, yeah, we did two thirds of a Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> two thirds of awesome. a Rogan and one tenth of a Sam Harris. So, <laughs> well, Benjamin, we want to be respectful of your time. I believe it is uh, time for you to go about the rest of your day. Yeah. Uh, thank drink. you so much. This is this mm-hmm. is kind of Absolutely, a big deal for Dan. us. We appreciate it. Thanks, been, both. Uh, Thanks yeah. guys. Listen to a lot on. of what you've been sharing. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, no, Keep we, on producing that content. Let me know one of this up. Will. And I'm not a ghost on social media, so I will share it. Excellent. Much appreciated. Perfect. We love it. And um, I will probably, if it's okay with you, send you emails with questions in the future. Okay. And if we get it. And if we could ever have you back on, we would love to have you on for future endeavors if you're ever yeah. down for that. So hit me up. Hit me up. Perfect. Well, thank you, you everybody. Have a good night. Enjoy your whiskey, your bourbon, or your gin, whatever's going on. <laughs> I got. Uh, I had whiskey. I had two. I'm kind of drunk now because I'm a lightweight. So <laughs> 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 this is actually a good time to end, so I don't say anything stupid. <laughs> All right, guys. You have All a right, good everyone. Night. All right, you, you too. too. Have a good night. Bye. Take care, buddy. Bye.